to Midwretched. It's 7.53 on Monday night. It's 8.53 for me. Oh. And isn't well, it Tuesday? It is Tuesday. <laughs> I could never make it on NPR. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard. Like, I'm a teacher on summer break, so I don't know what day it is half the time, but you have a real yeah. job. So, <laughs> what's your excuse? You know, I honestly feel like the nonverbal, non-speaking kiddos have just infiltrated my brain. Yeah, and yeah. I don't need words anymore. Yeah, who needs them? I'm just vibing with the non-speakers. I love that. I say just keep on vibing, <laughs> although I need you to speak today because I have questions for you. Damn it. Yeah, sorry. I have I have expectations for you today. <laughs> Can I just do a letter board or an AAC? Because you got to spend your whole weekend with me and you had so much fun that now your brain is just... I do. I have introvert burnout. Yeah. Like, I love you so much. But there's so much peopling. Yeah. We did. And we did a lot of peopling. I'll, I'll say that. We yeah. Did. But we got to visit over the weekend and it was lovely. It was so long overdue. It really was. We've had, we've seen each other, but not for like a long period of time in a while. Yeah. Not since our trip when we started our show have we been like spent a weekend together, I don't think. Which was almost a year ago coming up. It's almost anniversary season. Yeah, Labor Day. So, yeah, it was. we went to the Arboretum. We ate a lot of Middle Eastern food. Tommy helped me find the best local Middle Eastern food. They needed some help, people. They just did not know what to Listen, do. Listen, yeah. I, I, okay. You explained to me the nuances of how to spell tabbouleh and what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read, well... I guess I did know that I grew up in Lebanese tabbouleh, but I just didn't put in, like, which flavor profile is forward means where it's from, mm-hmm. and yes. And now you know. Now and now you know. know. And we found you two decent restaurants. Yes. I still think we can do better, but I need another weekend, you know? I think, like, one was a very good lunch place because I like falafel for lunch. Mm-hmm. And it but was a really like good falafel. Very good falafel. But I feel still feel like I can find a better, like, dinner, like, full yeah. meal place. Yeah, I think so, too. So next time, that'll be what we do because I, I feel like I've started a mission and I feel satisfied with, like, where we are in that mission, but I don't feel like it's complete, you know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we went shopping. We went to a party, a, a COVID-safe party. Hi, Mindy. Hi. We do, love you. we do love you. And we just had a lovely time, didn't we? Yes. And I got to show you my ever-blossoming pumpkin patch. Yeah. And your new house, oh, which yeah. I hadn't seen yet. So Yeah, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, the house is adorable. I made you sleep on a mattress in my basement because <laughs> furniture has still not been delivered. And it was a really great mattress in the basement, actually. So... <laughs> It was so good that I actually spent Sunday night after I came home also sleeping on the floor because <laughs> I couldn't sleep in my bed. So I went and slept on the mattress pad that's on my toddler's bedroom floor. <laughs> oh, honey. Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird night. So uh, is there anything else that you feel like we need to discuss or share before we get started on this week's case? You know what? I did a check of all of my recent cases just to see who has hearings coming up or do we have any new advancements. And so far, nothing. But I do have some feelers out for some things, especially as courts are starting to open back up again. Mm -hmm. So I got feelers out. 
Good. Yeah, same here. Just feelers. Nothing definitive, but good feelers. Yeah. Waiting to see things happen. It's still allergy season. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt so bad for you because there was a, I don't know if it was a night or a morning, but we were separated, which means it was sleepy time. And <laughs> there was just this cacophony of sneezes. And I felt so bad for you because it just like it wouldn't stop. It might have been nighttime, like before bed, and you were upstairs just like, hachoo, 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 hachoo. And I just, I felt so My bad. sneezes are not that cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wasn't going to call you out. <laughs> you did My it yourself. My sneezes could fucking rock this year's tower, They dude. could. They really could. Oh. Although mine are just as bad. I, I'm not a cute sneezer ever. Yeah. I wish I was. Yeah. My husband it's is. Okay. Yeah. He literally sounds like when he sneezes, he sounds like a cat coughing. Like you wouldn't even know it was a sneeze. Aww. It's just like, eh, and he's done. Murder Beagle does the reverse sneezes. Have you ever seen a beagle do reverse oh, sneezes? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're fun. That's They're cute. So that is cute. Uh, all right, but Murder Beagle, murders, you got a story for us. I do, I do. And you know what's weird about this story for me is that I think this is the first time on this show that I've presented an unsolved case. I am so excited to hear this. Yeah. I love an unsolved case. I love a mystery. Mm-hmm. But I also know that not everybody does. Yeah, and I don't typically. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this case was A, just the victim touched my heart and also because I think it's very solvable despite being currently unsolved so it's one of these ones where like I hope that we see it solved I think we will see it solved at some point I just think Mm -hmm. there needs to be I think there needs to be a little noise and a little more pressure on it yeah so we're here to make some noise today all right let's make some noise yeah so I'm a teacher on summer break which means that mostly (laughs) I'm spending all of my time uh, pretending I'm not a teacher (laughs) Because teaching in America right now is hard. Everybody hug a teacher. They had a really tough year. Yeah, we really did. But I do want to start this episode in the same way that I start many units in my classroom, which (laughs) just hang with me, hang with me. Oh, God. Um, Do we have like opening questions? Do we have to journal for five minutes? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I have an essential question (laughs) for today. Great hated these and well i want you to think about this question and i want to get your initial feedback and then i want to reflect back on the question at the end which is good lesson planning thank you very much so here's my essential question for you what does it mean for an investigation to have failed do you want me to answer or do you just want me to think about no i want you to answer a lot of things kind of come rushing forward that evidence was lost or not gathered Leads were not followed. When investigations start with a perpetrator in mind Mm. rather than truly studying the crime, that is a failed investigation. Um, When victims don't get justice, it's a failed investigation, especially when it is, as you have said, solvable but not solved. Mm. Bias makes a crime a failure. I have a lot of other thoughts, but I'll start with those. I like it. I like it. 
Do you think that every unsolved case is a failed case? I don't think so because I think that some cases everyone has tried their best and I mean I guess it's how you define failed. You can mm-hmm. fail at something even though you have tried your best. You can fail at something and it is simply a Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. So I, and I urge listeners to think about like their answers to those questions too, because I feel like those questions could really, or those answers could really vary, right? Like for some, it might be as clear cut as an investigation is failed if it's never solved, Mm -hmm. right? Or if it never comes to a resolution. Mm -hmm. Other times we might see it with more nuance. I think a, a corollary question that I think is interesting is, is every case solvable? Yeah. And if you believe that every case is solvable, then it stands to reason that any case unsolved could be considered a failed one, right? I struggle with that one, man. Because yeah. especially, you know, I love to jump in my time machine and do an old timey. Mm-hmm. And those cases are so difficult to solve. Yeah. And that was a question I wanted to think about too, was like, what's the difference as far as like time frame or environment or, mm-hmm. you know, all those kinds of things. I also think that we tend to think about failure as the end of something yeah. right and so like if a case is ongoing mm-hmm. it still has a chance to have not failed right Correct. or there's a chance that it's failed so far but will stop failing yeah how far does the journey of failure go yeah exactly yeah. and I, I mean i'd like to think about that personally as we're never done with anything right i like but, this idea and i'm going to cut in and say I want to hear what our listeners think on social media. Me too. Me too. I'm really, really, really curious about that. So um, we'll post a little ahead of this case. Maybe we'll post some essential questions and <laughs> see what people's responses are. <laughs> I know. You just have I to withdraw myself. that bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> there is not one single part of my mind, body, or spirit that misses the classroom right now. It's still mid-June, so like ask me again in late July, but no, I just have this annoying innate teacherness that just doesn't like to go away. Yeah, fair. That's just how I am. So yeah, keep those questions in mind while we talk about this case. All right, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, so I am going to first kind of tell you about the victim in today's case. So I'm taking us to North Dakota today, and we're going to discuss the case of the murder of Anita Knutson. Anita was an 18-year-old young woman when she was killed, and she was just, after looking at like pictures of her and footage of her, she is just delightful, like effervescent. She is the type of person that just lit up a whole room. Funny, extremely outgoing, kind of a goofball. She loves to ham it up for the camera. She's got all these videos of her just being goofy (laughs) on film. She was just fun, and she was somebody that people really loved to be around. Just a really, really sweet person, kind of life of the party type of girl, big smile, just really delightful. But she was also kind of a little bit of a firecracker. From early childhood, kind of into her teen years up to the age of 18 she was somebody that like kind of always stood up for the little guy she would like regularly stand up to bullies like anyone that was picking on her friends or even people that weren't her friends like she just wasn't somebody that would stand for that she defended other people just endlessly and she also really 
like took the time and energy to befriend people that didn't otherwise have a lot of friends. Oh, I like her. Yeah, so she was really just, the words I wrote down for her, brave, firecracker, (laughs) compassionate. She was just a really phenomenal young person. And she came from a a pretty special family, too. I want to talk about her, kind of the structure. It's pretty interesting in and of itself. So her parents, Gordon and Sharon Knutson, actually had several older children and then adopted Anita and her two other siblings and two other siblings, Anna and Daniel, who are kind of closer in age together in their older years. So like when you see interviews like with her parents and stuff, they seem old enough to be more like her grandparents, but they are her adoptive parents. And so they adopted these siblings that were like, they're not blood siblings to each other, but... They adopted each of them as babies or toddlers. They adopted Anita when she was five months old. And so this, like the three siblings that were kind of really close in age and they were all adopted, they were just really, really close, like Mm -hmm. super tight-knit, kind of, you know, very emotionally close, obviously close in proximity, just really tight little family. That's sweet. Do I know anything about her biological family or... We do not. We do not. We know that she was born September 22nd, 1988 in Orange County, California. She was, like I said, five months old when she was adopted. So it didn't seem like it was really a part of her life that much from what I could tell. All right. Like I said, she was born in Southern California, beautiful Orange County. And the family actually stayed there in Southern California. They lived in Anaheim, which I love because they also have amazing Middle Eastern food. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I went to an amazing Syrian restaurant in Anaheim many years ago, and it was an amazing experience that I still think about occasionally. (laughs) So they stayed in Anaheim until she was a rising sophomore in high school, and then they moved to Butte, North Dakota. Butte! Yeah, Butte has a population of 68 what? Shut up. Butte is a very, 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 very small place. Remember that town we went to in Wisconsin on our friend anniversary ages ago that had a population mm-hmm. of like 32? Yeah. <laughs> and we like made it 34 <laughs> for that day. How is that like a God? That's crazy to think of. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah it, like a family, I kept thinking like a family the size of the Knutsons moving into Butte like changes its entire demographic you are nine percent of their population yeah exactly exactly i actually this is kind of a sidebar and we can keep it or not but i thought it was a really interesting thing like i um used to work with this man who was the only his was the only black family in this tiny family in idaho Uh or this tiny town in idaho and his family were the 10% 10% of the population in that town that was black because the town was so small. So when one of them moved away, like for college, all of a sudden the population is like 6%, you know? <laughs> like if you have a small enough town where your family is statistically significant, that's really You never want to be town. statistically significant. Never. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Um, so... But I just kept thinking, like, wow, what a change to move from, like, SoCal to somewhere like Butte, which is a tiny, tiny, small town. We don't know why they moved. I assumed it was for somebody's work. Yeah. But they moved. And I think, you know, as a teenager, you could see that being, like, a really rough transition. And I'm sure in some ways it was. But it didn't seem 
like Anita slowed down at all. She just had this, like I said, like this kind of unflappable personality. And she did, by all accounts, pretty well in Butte. That's so cool. All right. Yeah. And she just kind of kept thriving. She graduated from the local high school, which is called Velva High School, uh, in 2006. Velva. Velva. I just like saying that. It's not significant to the case. I just wanted to say it out loud. Yeah, good, good, good. So she was college-bound, and right after high school, she enrolled in college at Minot State University, which is in Minot, North Dakota, which is about an hour north of Butte. Go Minots. So Butte is like smack dab in the middle of the state, basically, like almost dead center if you like threw a target at it. And then Minot's just a little bit north of that, about an hour. All right. So she left home, but she didn't go crazy far away, Yeah. you know? So she went to college to study elementary education, which we love. We love our elementary educators. We My do. partner who doesn't really listen do. to this. I know. We need him to listen. We. I know. It's hard for He's him. too pure. He is too wholesome. Anyway, <laughs> elementary educators anyway. are wonderful. They are so great. They are so wonderful. And they're very hardworking people, which Anita also was. So she, you know, while she was in college, she was working two jobs. Mm-hmm. She worked in housekeeping at a hotel in town. Uh, and she also worked retail at a little boutique while doing a full-time course load. So she was she was really grinding in Minot to make her life work. Yeah, you know? way to be. Yeah, she's just kind of kicking butt out there. She <laughs> didn't live on campus. She lived in an off-campus apartment, um, which was on 24th Avenue in Minot. And I wanted to kind of note the layout of that apartment a little bit. Okay. Just because when I Google Street Viewed it, It didn't look like a typical apartment complex. You know, you probably picture them like big city style, like big tall buildings. You might live on the 10th floor or whatever. Yeah. Which where where I live is a big building. You're cute. I know. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Detroit, but I haven't haven't lived there in a while. But in, you know, in like suburbs and smaller cities and smaller towns, I picture more of, you know, maybe two or three story buildings like kind of clumped together in a complex, right? Yeah. What I thought was notable about this complex, and it comes to play as far as crime scene, is that it was a completely single-story complex. Oh, interesting. So it just kind of looked like one long, short building, almost like a motel, you know, situated on this block in Minot. So they got a couple of those in the near subs. Yeah, it just seemed, it seemed, you know, kind of unique to me. So they were all single-story buildings, all next to each other, no upper levels, everybody lives on the ground floor. Yep. And that just kind of stood out to me just for the sheer fact that statistically ground floor apartments are a lot easier notoriously for intruders to get in and out of yeah. than apartments on higher levels. I was always so, taught to never live in a ground floor or a garden apartment. Not yes, that you always have yes. the choice. Right. Yeah, me too. But if given the choice, I was definitely going to opt for upstairs for that uh-huh. reason. So uh, I just say that because when we get to kind of our list of potential persons of interests or potential suspects... You want to think about how easy traversing this apartment potentially could have been. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about the weekend Anita's murder. Sharon Knudsen, which again was Anita's mom, had last talked to her daughter on Friday the 1st of June, 2007. And there wasn't anything like particularly notable about that conversation. It sounded normal. Um, Anita did not describe like any distress or stress, just kind of typical conversation now on saturday anita did not arrive at work at the fairfield hotel marriott where she worked in housekeepings 
What is unclear is whether she called in sick or no call, no showed. Okay. We don't know that. Interesting to not know that. Um, All right. Yeah. Frustrating to not know that, I say. I didn't find anything, you know, like often, you know, you'll see like they weren't the type to no call, no show. Like you'll see that kind of rhetoric. Oh, yeah. In articles, I didn't see anything like that, but I would still think be- because she did work two jobs and was a student and just she seems relatively responsible, kind of all around yeah. a pretty legit person, stable. Yeah, I assume that she she just didn't show up. Okay, but that's an assumption on my part. All we know is that she was not there when she was supposed to be, because that's almost always noted. Well, let me. I'll talk about police in a little bit Great. here, and uh, you'll. <laughs> You'll uh, find out why it wasn't noted, perhaps. <sighs> so so Sharon called her on Saturday and got no answer. So that's also suspicious. And I think probably on the Saturday, she just assumed that she was either working or socializing. It seemed like Anita could be found in one of two places, basically, if she wasn't at school, working or with friends, yeah. you know. Like you do in your teens and your early 20s. Yeah, yeah. She was just kind of having a pretty normal life. But... She didn't answer the phone on either Sunday or Monday either. Oh, uh, okay. And that became worrisome. It seems like she was relatively close to her family. Yeah, yeah. They definitely spoke very, very often, the siblings, the parents, and nobody could get a hold of her basically for that entire weekend. Okay. So on Monday, uh, Sharon got worried and actually asked her husband, Gordon, to drive down to Minot and check on her. Okay. So Gordon got in the car and he made that trip. Again, it's only about an hour. Yeah. So not a huge deal. He made that trip on the Monday. And when he got to the apartment complex, the first thing he saw was Anita's car in the parking lot. So her car was there. So, you know, at this point, we're hoping that she was sick and just laid up in bed uh-huh. and just maybe like kind of not wanting to talk on the phone, whatever. Maybe she walked to work, you know, who knows. Um, but she didn't answer his knock at the door. And I assume that when he's knocking, he's also like, Anita, it's dad, you know, yeah. trying to get her attention. And, and she didn't answer the door. So he found the apartment manager. And um, I liked what he had to say about finding the apartment manager. He says, so I went to the apartment manager and said that I wanted her to open the door. First, she said she couldn't do that because she could get in trouble. And I said, well, I think you'll get in trouble if you don't. <laughs> I love him dadding out. Oh, good. Yes. I, I like Gordon a yeah. lot. And so the apartment manager actually grabbed the apartment's maintenance man, who happened to also be her boyfriend, and they took Gordon to Anita's apartment to potentially open it up. While they were walking there, the maintenance guy had said, like, hey, oh, by the way, here's this screen that I found near her apartment that has obviously been torn. Uh-oh. Or ripped. Yep. Found near, like, outside, I'm assuming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, found outside of her bedroom. In the bushes. So, yeah. Uh, it was on the ground near the apartment. There's not really... If if the apartments looked then like they look now, very bare bones. Yeah. A lot of street-facing windows. It would be a hard place to pop out of a window of and not be seen, I would imagine. Yeah. But what happened next was just really tragic. So they took Gordon around to the window where the screen had popped out of, and it was actually open. And it was her bedroom window. And he was actually able to look in and see Anita lying on her bed. And he reached in and touched her head. And it was cold to the touch. So they demanded, or he demanded that they let him in the front door immediately, obviously. 
He would go on to tell people, tell the media, tell police that he knew. I mean, she was cold to the touch. He knew that she was dead before he got in there. And that he just kind of went into a state of shock autopilot, basically. Which I imagine is just kind of what happens Mm -hmm. in that situation for a lot of people. So they got into the front door. And the place was, and this will be corroborated by police later, the place was undisturbed. Okay. So no sign of a struggle, no sign of a break-in. The only thing out of place, aside from uh, the scene in Anita's room, was just that busted window screen. Interesting. Okay. So nothing disturbed at visibly at all, okay. you know? And when you hear about, like, signs of a struggle, quote-unquote, usually what they're going to be looking for is, like, furniture is askew, stuff on the floor, mm-hmm. stuff turned over, maybe a broken dish or whatever. Like, it's going to look like something happened, yeah. you know? And it was just fine. It was all fine basically until they got into her bedroom where they found her face down on her bed in a pool of blood with a bathrobe placed on top of her. Oh, my God. Yeah. So just to take a second to really absorb the fact that it was her dad that had to find her that way. Yeah. Which just breaks my heart for him. And if you watch interviews with him, you know, obviously he's very impacted, you know. This, and it might seem like a crude question, but I think given how her dad found her and it might give a clue to motive and whatnot, was she dressed mm-hmm. under the robe? She was. Okay. Curious, right? Yeah, curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about that as well. So the way that this scene was processed makes it feel like what happened should have been kind of a no-brainer, except for a couple of kind of conspicuous details that would mean that motive would be really hard to kind of speculate on so uh the murder weapon was still in the apartment interesting and it was found basically right away and it was just a pocket knife oof with a four inch blade i i say oof because that's a short blade to do a lot of damage with yeah it's really crude and that was found now this is frustrating because some reports will say it was found at the foot of her bed Others will say it was tossed into a sink. That was a big difference. It feels like small details, but could be a very big difference, right? Left at the foot of her bed implies, to me, a rush. Yeah. Tossed in the sink implies enough time to rinse it that off. That you were trying to cover. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that could mean, can we recover any prints from it? Yes. And it means that the if it was in the bathroom sink or the um, kitchen sink... That would mean that you've got another spot that you can potentially really focus on to process. Yep, that's right? another section of the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So that's frustrating that that is inconsistent amongst reporting. What I also found really interesting was upon medical examination, she was found to have only died of a couple of stab wounds. Okay. With that pocket knife to her neck and chest. That was interesting to me because when you think about stabbings, you usually think about that like frenzied, mm-hmm. like we hear a lot about like how stabbings are very often like overkill and you hear this like absurd number of stabbings, like there were 40 wounds or 30 wounds or whatever. Because there are a few places in the body that one stab wound would kill you. Yeah. And she had two stab wounds, what most reports will say. Wow. To her neck and chest. So, I mean, a singular stab wound to the jugular is going to do yep. it. Yep. But that's also got to be careful and intentional pretty precise Mm -hmm. right yeah um or extremely 
lucky if you're that killer. Yes. That you just kind of hit that on the first time, right, with a pocket knife. That was just a compelling detail to me that also you would need other pieces for it to imply much, Mm -hmm. right? But on one hand, it implies like a, a degree of knowledge. Yeah. I think for it to only have been two stab wounds also implies that Anita was still when it happened. Yeah. Potentially. Um, that there wasn't that, again, that frenzy of just stab, 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 stab. No hesitations, you know? no defensive wounds, things like mm-hmm. that. Again, it's it seems like small details, but it's a couple pieces of a like a thousand piece puzzle. We're, we're just collecting one piece exactly. at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're missing a piece of the puzzle, it's never going to come together, yeah. right? I just think that that's kind of worth some thought. Yes. Agreed. You Agreed. know? Yeah. And so they concluded that she had died sometime on Sunday morning. Uh-huh. And so, again, she was discovered on Monday, um, Monday morning. So she had died about 24 hours prior. I'm assuming that they made that assumption based on body temperature and probably the the end of rigor mortis usually happens at 24 to 36 hours. So at 24 hours, you're kind of like, you're starting to unrigor, mm-hmm. basically. So I'm, I'm guessing that that's the state that she was probably in for them to make that particular assertion about time of death. Yeah. I have questions slash doubts, but okay. Well, I'm all, that's all my... <laughs> go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, I mostly... Well, one, time of death is a shaky science. Yes. Yep. It's what my students would call a squishy construct. Mm-hmm. There's always a lot of room for variability in there based on the temperature yes. of the room and, mm-hmm. you know, just your own personal body reactions. Yeah. We're going to talk about that later. And also just because you have alluded that the, that the police maybe didn't do the best investigation here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's definitely questionable. And also that she missed work on Saturday. Exactly. I'm just stacking up my questions. Yep. So I think the way that I've sort of structured the end of our conversation plays very well into uh, your question stack. All right. I'm going to put my shelf here. You know that I like my shelves. Yeah. I like that. Put it in your rage pocket, your rage shelf. Ooh. I got to say this. Uh, I think this baby really likes true crime because she's moving and shaking in there. Yeah. She's like, I have questions. I know. <laughs> she's like, I Basically. have a theory. I got yeah, a profile. Yeah. If you got some theories, she probably, she's going to be another one of you, I bet. So, look, like the apartment was, like I said, almost downright serene. Huh. Nothing missing. No sign of sexual assault. Interesting. Which, like the two obvious motives for an attack like this, you would think would be either sexual violence or a robbery. Mm-hmm. Neither of those fit the scene. Yeah. Right? Now, I would caveat that by saying that... Um, there doesn't always have to be a sexual assault for there to have been a sexual motivation. Correct. Right? We see that sometimes in, like, crimes where somebody is sexually humiliated before being killed, but perhaps not actually physically touched. You do see that. So yes. I, I certainly wouldn't want to say, like, that I'm ruling out sexual a, a sexual motive. But it didn't fit the scene, right? Mm-hmm. It did kind of quickly get theorized that the killer had exited the window that was busted, uh-huh. but perhaps had also entered through it Yeah, because the front door was locked. Doesn't necessarily mean they entered through it, though. But Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the police officers who was a part of this investigation is going to kind of contradict that later with something that he says. 
I was going to say, so, like different, especially a lot of apartment doors automatically lock when you close them. Yeah. And, you know, slashing a screen would not be the first time that we saw somebody ever try to stage a crime scene to make it look like something else, right? That's kind of the easy way to do that. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, though, that at this point just like boggles the mind a bit. Everybody loved Anita. Yeah. Right? It's not like anyone could think, oh, this must have been this person, it must have been that person. Those thoughts did not occur to her yeah. loved ones. What did kind of start to occur, though, was basically this idea that if nobody disliked her and she had no known enemies, could her killer be somebody that perhaps loved her a little bit too much? Mm, interesting. And kind of on that note, basically a scene started to gather outside the apartment, right? Like, obviously, this is a big deal and it's going to be a spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a spectacle. And kind of the first and who would become for many armchair detectives a primary person of interest was right there in the crowd. Oh, I love it when they're in the crowd. Yeah. Uh, So this guy's name is Tyler Schmalz and he loved Anita. Okay. And that, that much is just very, very, very clear. You can find him on the record talking about Anita. His love for her is pretty clear. So they were the same age. They went to high school together. And he actually moved into the same apartment complex as her when they graduated high school. He would say things like, you know, all my friends left, you know, for jobs or university. And she was still around and still my friend. And that she was just a very, very important person in his life. Is this kind of like an unrequited crush kind of thing? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Kind of on that note, she actually agreed to go to their high school prom together. Okay. Platonically as friends. And Tyler will say on the record, like, I had a crush on her. It was not returned. But I did have a crush on her. So he's very honest about that. Yeah, fair. Right. So he was asked, you know, kind of right on the scene, they pulled him into a van and asked him some questions. And they asked him when was the last time he had spoken to Anita? And he became a person of interest very quickly because they, he answered that question very, very fast and very, very accurately. He knew exactly when he had spoken to her last. Okay. And they thought that was pretty sus. But when you ask Tyler why he was able to recall that so easily, it was because, uh, according to him, when the crowd started to gather, one of Anita's aunts was also there, which he knew because, again, small towns, and the aunt had asked him the same question. So he went into his apartment, looked at his um, AIM chat log, basically. <laughs> what year are we in, by the way? 07. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I think we were still on AIM in 07. It, I think it was the downside of AIM because Facebook started in 05. Yeah, that's true. Because Anita's, she graduated high school a year after me. And I remember talking to Creepy Matt on AIM in our sophomore year of college. I do remember phasing out AIM. And I remember phasing out Creepy Matt via AIM. So. Hi, Creepy Matt. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're listening. Yeah, right. He probably is. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, so he was talking to her aunt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because he had gone in to check exactly when he had talked to her online, he was able to to say the same thing because he had just told the aunt. So he knew, right? It was on his mind. It's not like he would have been able to recall that on a dime had he not just literally looked it up. Yeah. That's that's what he says about that. But that was enough for him to be on the police radar from then on just because it seemed obsessive, right? For him to know precisely when. I guess. But again, technology. It's technology plus somebody who was pretty into technology 
Yeah. So um, Tyler is a computer guy. So it stands to reason that he would know that with pretty easy access just because he was into computers, right? Yeah. He would kind of stay suspicious to police and to some members of the community also because uh, in the weeks that followed, he created a Facebook tribute page in her memory. And he also created a 20-minute tribute video that he put on YouTube. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was just very kind of devoted to her memory. And some people thought, you know, a little too devoted. I'm going yeah. to hold on to it. But for the moment, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Keep Tyler somewhere in your brain um, as we talk about some of the other POIs that kind of came in and out of the scene here. So there was also at the time a large crew of men working on a roofing project across the street that police were very interested in them. Okay. There were a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was notable was that from where they were working, it would have been pretty easy to watch Anita's comings and goings. Mm Mm-hmm. And to get a sense of her habits okay, to make it easier, you know, to potentially victimize her in some way. Again, my question, though, is like, why would these men who are strangers to Anita break in without a sexual or a robbery motive, right? Yeah, I feel like I need more than that coincidence. Yeah. So uh, each of those men were questioned and nobody charged or considered a POI since then. Okay. So we're kind of done with the roofers. All right. Bye, roofers. Yeah, bye, roofers. So at this point, another tip came in that somebody had said they saw a man running away from the area of Nita's apartment that Sunday morning. All right. And that was kind of the first, like, hot tip that would hit the media. A sketch was released of the man, and it was, like, a man in profile wearing a hoodie. And the man actually saw himself on the news and was like, ah, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, could you imagine? So he contacted police right away and he's like, look, I I do a jog every day down that street. That was me. Here's my DNA. Here's my whereabouts. Okay, that's pretty, like, clearing. Yeah. Yeah, and he was immediately cleared of any wrongdoing. It just kind of, it sucked because it was a really hot lead. And then it just was, like, deflated, like, the same day it hit the news. And then it's very much just, like, no, this is literally just an everyday occurrence that seems Mm -hmm. sketchy because what happened around it. Exactly. Yeah. Which, like, you know, you applaud those witnesses for saying that because you're looking for anything that's going on, right? And then you applaud that guy for immediately knowing, like, oh, my gosh, that was me. I have to call them. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and get this kind of off the off the radar so as someone with an anxiety disorder i feel like that's going to happen every minute of my life (laughs) it's like oh god i'm gonna be implicated in a crime i better not go jogging anymore (laughs) yeah i don't do that anyway (laughs) our next kind of suspect that we want to think about our person of interest i should say is the maintenance man that we talked about earlier who helped gordon into the apartment okay so he came under scrutiny because uh, as the maintenance man and as the person dating the apartment manager, he obviously had very easy access to the apartment. Mm-hmm. And that could be an explanation for why nothing looked particularly out of hand. Mm-hmm. If, you know, sometimes we go with that theory that like, you know, there's a reason that people that find bodies or find evidence kind of end up under a degree of suspicion. The fact that he had found that window screen 
you know, put a bit of a microscope on him as well. So uh, he had easy opportunity. So the thought was maybe he made his way in, he had some kind of confrontation and stabbed her whenever whatever happened got out of line or out of hand. There would be more trace evidence at the scene, though. Agreed. Yep. The scene was just so quiet, you know? Yeah. But he stayed on the radar because of another kind of tragic event that happened um, about a, actually almost a year later, almost to the exact day after Anita's death, uh, he actually completed suicide. Oh so, my God. yeah, almost exactly a year to the day after Anita's death. Wow. Okay. Which some people will obviously correlate to that sense of guilt or remorse or tragedy or what have you. Yeah. There's so many more things to consider. Yeah, there are. But when there's not that many facts, right, you find, mm-hmm. you know, you find yourself scrap, scrapping at whatever, yeah. right? And that's what people were doing, you know? Yeah, you fill in the um, blanks where you see them, yeah. Exactly. So the police have stated that they do not consider him to be a suspect, okay. um, that he checked out okay, and that his suicide was likely unrelated All to right. Anita's death. So the book is kind of closed on him officially as well. Just because it's closed for police does not necessarily mean it's closed for everybody else, Right. Of course. And there, there is a, a large set of people who do believe that the maintenance worker, you know, was the guy that did it. What evidence was there against him other than the fact that he had access? None. Just the access on the screen. Every maintenance worker has access. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, we've got Tyler Schmalls, we've got the roofers, we've got the maintenance worker. Okay. We have one more person of interest to talk about. Okay. And that's Anita's roommate. Oh, I didn't know she had a roommate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the roommate has never been named in a formal context. So she is unnamed. Interesting. Um, okay. Officially. I'm sure that, you know, you could figure out who she was. But because she hasn't been named in an official capacity or in any news outlets, we'll preserve her anonymity. But she was the one person that ever had like a publicly bad relationship with Anita. Okay. So as a female roommate, what they came at odds about was basically that Anita would tell her friends and family that her roommate would have men over a lot and that the men made her feel unsafe and they were not men that she thought were particularly wholesome and that sometimes the roommate would actually leave during those gatherings, leaving the men behind. Yeah. Yeah, that would be odd. I wouldn't feel safe in that situation either. Like, No, no, definitely not. Do we know, was this a friend of hers? Because, you know, your teens, 20s, you end up roommates with a lot of weirdos. Uh, that is very true. <laughs> and sometimes those weirdos stay in your life for 15 plus years. And sometimes they're just weirdos that come and go. And sometimes you um, start a, po- a murder podcast with them. Yeah, basically. And sleep on their floor. Sometimes. I offered Sometimes. you a bed. That's true. I didn't take it. <laughs> I wanted the floor mattress. It's really comfy. It's just really nice. So uh, I, we don't know how the roommates came together, okay. if she was a friend or not, but she certainly was not a friend by the time of Anita's death. So we know that for sure. So whether it started amicably, it did not end that way particularly. So um, Anita, again, not a shrinking violet. She addressed those concerns with her roommate and her roommate started to send her threatening texts. 
and just kind of flipped out on her pretty much. Okay. So Anita had been planning on moving out for a little while and that she had actually, at one point she was planning to move in with another friend, but decided against it because she got the heebie-jeebies about her friend's husband. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is fair. And so she was kind of in a bit of a standstill. She didn't have any other place lined up. So kind of near the time of her death, she told her mom that she was trying to patch it up with her roommate. Okay. I presume because she didn't have another place lined up. So you got to patch it up, you know? You try to make things work the best you can in those situations. Yeah, exactly. But uh, another thing that would kind of come up that would put suspicion back on the roommate is that obviously the roommate has easy access to the apartment. It's her Mm -hmm. apartment. Yeah. The undisturbed scene. At Anita's funeral, the roommate's mom verbally attacked Sharon Knutson, Anita's mom. What? So the roommate's mom got all up in uh, Sharon's face at the funeral like yelling at her for slandering her daughter. Now, Sharon was the one mostly who brought those concerns about their relationship to the police. Mm -hmm. So I assume that the other mom thought that it was Sharon's fault that her daughter was being questioned or being looked at by police. Yeah. But many people would look at that attack as a pretty sharp potential arrow pointed at her daughter's guilt yeah yeah it's a little reactive it looks bad yeah it's very reactive Mm -hmm. very reactive now the police considered the roommate to have what they called a rock solid alibi so she has not been uh, made to be a suspect in this case what's the alibi sell me this alibi exactly (laughs) on a scale of one to ten tell me how sold you are by this alibi on the weekend of Anita's murder, she was staying with her parents. Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Um, now, her parents corroborated that story, but who's going to cover for you when you're in trouble and you're 18? Your nope. parents. Yep. You know? Yeah. Especially with that reaction from mom at the funeral, man. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's not looking good. Like, how close of attention would they have been paying to her? Right. If I crashed with my family when I was 18, they go to bed at 9 o'clock. They don't Mm -hmm. know where I am after that. Right. Doesn't mean you were with them with them the entire time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that kind of brings me to kind of this big question. Why has no one been charged in this case? The thing is, we have a scene with a murder weapon, Mm -hmm. which usually feels like a pretty good slam dunk. There's got to be prints on there. Um I will talk about the DNA evidence in a minute here, but there was blood that was not Anita's on that window screen. Okay. Whose? Exactly. So the question is, was this investigation done with fidelity? All right. And so I want to kind of talk about like what, what holes have kind of come out as far as how this all was handled. Okay. I want to say, kind of first off, it's going to be real hard to prove DNA evidence against the roommate because her DNA mm-hmm. is going to be all over that apartment no matter what. Exactly. Exactly. So that makes that rough. Yeah, that could be totally moot. If it was anybody else, like Tyler Schmalz or the maintenance guy, that would be a lot easier, right? Well, even Tyler Schmalz, if they were friends, he, you know, mm-hmm. he could say like, oh, yeah, I was over there last weekend. We're hanging out in her bedroom. 
Right. The maintenance guy could say, oh, I had to fix that window, you know, whatever. Yeah. And my, my finger bled, you know, or yeah. whatever. Anyway, go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, some of this information comes actually from Tyler Schmalls. So okay. he said that within the month uh, following Anita's murder, he was questioned again. And actually that everybody in the complex was questioned. Okay. Including his brother who lived with him. And that DNA was taken from everybody who agreed to have it taken. And the police would go on to say that that was the case for pretty much everyone they talked to. That swabs were taken from everybody. That, again, like, leaves the implication there was some kind of DNA evidence recovered Mm -hmm. at the scene to compare it to. Which police, like I said, have corroborated that came from the blood smear on that torn window screen. Okay. So uh, what gets funky about that is that there's this local reporter. His name is Kim Fundingsland. Cool last name. Fundingsland. Fundingsland. Yes. I love it. He uh, is a primary kind of local reporter on this case. He also had an informant very close to the police department. He implies in one interview that they were ex-police or that they had at one time worked this case. And his informant basically gave him the information that at one point during the investigation, DNA swabs were taken but never actually tested. What? Yeah, there's a face right there. So why take all of them if you're not going to test any of them? So here's what police will say in response to that. So Ward County Sheriff's Deputy Robert Barnard has denied that on the record. He says that all swabs collected from questioned people have been compared to the DNA on the scene. I'm going to cast doubt on that immediately Mm -hmm. because we're in 2007, right? Mm -hmm. It is not free nor cheap to run DNA testing. So typically, they're only going to run DNA testing on a viable suspect. Mm. So I'm going to cast out immediately on the fact that they tested every single one of those swabs. And that's a really good point. The other thing that has not been clearly stated that to me raises some eyebrows is that, um, like I said, Deputy Barnard said that the swabs were all compared to the DNA on the scene. Mm -hmm. What has not been stated is whether or not the DNA collected from the screen has been compared to the databases held within the North Dakota Crime Lab or CODIS. Bam. Yes. That should be your first step. Yes. So until someone comes out and says, yes, we did that, Mm -hmm. that is going to be my greatest skepticism for this case do any of our suspects have any criminal history no okay but if every one of our suspects has allegedly had their swabs compared to the blood on the window screen Mm -hmm. it means that nobody on our list conceivably is the primary doer of this crime i don't know if i believe that but i believe that either it still stands to reason that you need to run that through yeah So that was the Ward County Sheriff's Office that said that. Now, the Minot police themselves, their Detective Sergeant David Goodman has had a couple of things to say, too. Um, He definitely has said that he's very aware that they've gotten a lot of criticism for the fact that the case just seems so damn solvable. Like, it just feels solvable. You've got this bunch, a whole bunch of people. You've got a girl with a really active social life. You have an entire apartment to process. And yet we have nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm thinking, I've been thinking about a lot of profiling lately. <laughs> I mean, mm, I always I think like about it. profiling. Yeah, right. Um, but it, thinking about kind of like victimology and hiding the body and everything. The fact that she was covered up, but like clearly in a way knowing that she would eventually be found. 
Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like normally if it's somebody that, no- okay, just based on like profiling standards. Yeah. Typically, if it's somebody that knows the victim, they're going to work harder to conceal the body. Mm-hmm. So to me, that just says something that she just had a rope thrown over her. Yeah. But the window was still open. Somebody, you obviously knew somebody was eventually going to go into that room and find the body. Yeah. That yeah. means that the perpetrator theoretically was just looking for enough time to run away. Mm, yeah. I think on that same note, what really stands out to me too is the fact that she was in bed mm-hmm. and like laying in her bed as though she was asleep. Yeah. And with no defensive wounds, no sign of a struggle, I still think that she was stabbed in her sleep. I think so too. Which means she didn't let somebody in, right? Mm-hmm. And so this Sergeant David Goodman, he will say, he thinks, it is his personal theory, that the busted screen is a red herring. Okay. That is his belief as a investigator on this case, that the person committed the crime had easy access to the apartment. Okay. And that they busted the screen as a diversion. I agree. Okay. Just as a little, you know, web sleuth, I agree. I could see that as an agreement. I'd be interested to see if it was cut from the inside or the outside. Right. Um. Um. (laughs) Wow. Synchronized ums. (laughs) But also then did they know that they left their blood behind? But we haven't identified the blood, so we don't even know whose it is. Exactly. We do know... A few sources, and again, like, it's filtered through reporting, not mm-hmm. a police report, that the screen was cut from the inside. Ah, that, yeah. That's a yeah. red herring then. Yes. So it could be, you know, earlier on they had the theory that they entered through the front door, exited through the window, which would still cause for the screen to be cut from the inside. However, I think it's weird Assuming that the stabbing was done with the same weapon as what pierced the screen, that the knife either ended up at the foot of her bed or in the sink does not make any sense if the screen was slashed on the way out. Yeah, that's a good point. That makes no sense. The fact that you even left the knife behind. Do we know, do we have any idea if the knife came from the apartment? Did it belong to Anita or the roommate? The problem with the knife is that it was described literally as a novelty pocket knife. So it wasn't special. It was something you could go to Walmart and you'd, you know, you'd see 20 of them on the shelf. Okay. So it's basically about as anonymous a knife as you're going to get. Damn. There's nothing to say that it came from inside the apartment. Yeah, if you asked me if I had a pocket knife in this apartment, I'd be like, probably... Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe. I don't know. I would imagine my husband has a pocket knife somewhere. I don't know. We've had three at various points. I don't know where they are or what they look like. Yeah. And given that it was like, like I said, like a quote unquote novelty pocket knife, mm-hmm. makes me wonder if it was just bought for this crime and then tossed and out. left behind. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense for the knife to be left where it was left for the window to have been slashed after the fact. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. The logical conclusion is that the window was slashed first or at about the same time as the stabbing and then the knife was tossed or thrown at the foot of the bed or into the bathroom sink. I think that she was she was killed in her sleep. 
I think so too. There's no other way to stab someone in the jugular mm-hmm. without there being defensive wounds. Yeah, I in think my mind so too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think so too. I just think there would have been some other sign. There would have been blood somewhere else in that apartment other than her bed, which to me also implies that she sat, sat still, right? Yeah. That it wasn't. There wasn't a handprint on the wall. There wasn't you know, blood dripped off the side. It was all confined to her bed, which makes me think that she was too. And then there was a stab wound in the chest. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know the location or where? No. Okay. Yeah. And I can't be sure that it's the jugular. I just know that it was mm-hmm. neck and chest. So for it to have been efficient, for it to have worked, it had to have been the jugular by my logic, but. Cause even if you stab, I can't think of a pocket knife. You pocket knife is like a couple inches maybe three four inches max right yeah it was a four inch blade okay four inch blade is that far enough to go down into your chest to hit like your heart or a vein for a chest wound to really kill you i don't think so i think you'd have to really force it i mean i know it certainly would be long enough to get through your jugular like if i yeah for your jugular yeah but that's why my neck yeah. yeah But that's why I'm wondering um, about the chest wound. Yeah, I think the chest wound was probably inconsequential from a medical standpoint. That, that's what I think. I'm thinking, yeah. Because yeah. I'm thinking, like, like if I get stabbed in the chest, okay, first there's about, at the top of my chest, there might be about two and a half inches of boob to get through, <laughs> and then sternum, and then schmush. Like, you're not going to get anywhere. And, like, a know. novelty pocket knife is, I, I don't know if that's going to cut through sternum bone. Yeah. It's a hard bone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the I think the fatal wound had to have been the neck wound. Yeah, which for her to bleed out seemingly in her sleep without mm. flailing and splatter, she had to be asleep. It had to be a, a jugular yeah. cut. The whole thing was to my mind like shockingly efficient for a weapon that's stupid. Yeah. To be honest with you. I think that killer got very, very lucky that they were able to achieve what they wanted to achieve in such a relatively easy way. Yeah. Killing someone in your sleep, though, man, that's cold. It's so cold. It's so cold. And again, like, I think about the fact that she was in her sleep, but there was no sign of sexual assault. That kind of keeps pinging to me as something really important, you know, to think about as far as elimination of motive. Where her window was, would anybody have seen inside of it? That's a good question. If you were close, I think you would have. Like, everything was close enough to where that when her dad got there, he could reach in the window and touch her head. Like, that's how small the apartment bedroom was. So if you were on ground level, you may have been able to see. Like, if you were, like, right outside, you may have been able to see something. But you wouldn't have necessarily seen her body, just because I'm thinking about, like, the physics of where the window she would have been able to see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind of back to what Sergeant Goodman kind of talks about. Like I said, like, he has his belief about the window screen, which I share. And so his thought was that the person who committed the crime would have had easy access to the apartment, either by possession of their own key, or that Anita would have known and trusted them well enough to let them in. Yeah. Now, what I think, though, is interesting or odd is that he has only said these things. They've only said these things uh, in direct response to public scrutiny. Okay. So these are not things that were said initially. I'm not sure if they were thinking about it as holdback evidence and then they were kind of pressurized. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's interesting that 
it was information that they were kind of sitting on or kept for holdback evidence or that they put a little extra work into it in response to the pressure. Yeah. So we talked a little bit for a second there about the, the idea of time of death calculations. Yes. And how dubious those can be. Yes. And those are notoriously dubious, right? Unless you die in the hospital or with a doctor or around other people in a wholesome setting, time of death is not easy peasy, like open and shut thing that it looks like on TV. Right? Correct. Everything is an approximation. Yeah. Now, there are things that are more easy to approximate than others. Rigor mortis follows a a pretty consistent pattern, Mm -hmm. person to person. Body temperature can vary considerably. So the amount of time it takes one person's body to reach room temperature versus another can be pretty shaky. The average body loses 1.5 degrees per hour from death onward. And that is going to depend on the room temp, too. Yep. Room temp, what the person is wearing, their body weight themselves. Larger bodies will stay warmer longer than thin bodies. We're in North Dakota. Yeah, but we're in the summer. Summer. Okay. Okay. That was my question. All right. Yeah. So my question was, now her autopsy report is not in the public domain, which I was very frustrated by. (laughs) I really like to read autopsy reports. It helps me a lot. But I do think it's really odd that she didn't come to work on Saturday. I do too really odd yeah and i find it odd that she would be out of touch with everybody for that entire weekend yeah nobody came forward to say that they talked to her no friend nobody saw her at a party nothing nothing which again is normal for some people but doesn't feel like it's normal for her right yeah i mean i cannot think of the last time that i went three days without contacting anybody i can't i mean those weekends I have a planned and three-day weekend. I'm not contacting anybody. you. Literally do, and I have to remember not to bother you that weekend. <laughs> you don't count. You're fine. I know. I know. But but yeah, like there would yeah. be there would be no weekend I could think of where I didn't either text you, my mom, my brother, my husband, my ex-husband. It would easily always be those five people. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if all five of them had not heard from me, if one of them hadn't heard from me, whatever you know. But if all five of them hadn't heard from me. That would be frightening. Do we have any text or any AIM messages, any Facebook? We have no contact between her and anybody else that weekend. That seems fishy for a social 18-year-old in 2007. Mm -hmm. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So the fact that they say that her death happened on Sunday morning, again, Time of death is an approximation. We don't know if the air conditioning was blaring in that apartment that would have caused for a slower slowing down of those early stages of decomposition. And like I kind of implied before, like bodies are a very dynamic ecosystem. It's a beautiful thing. And because of that, time of death can never be that exact, even in the best of circumstances. Yeah. doesn't mean it's not good. And it can be quite, quite good. But you have to consider... All of the surrounding factors. And that isn't to say that they didn't. Yeah. Right? But I just want to cast a little bit of... Reasonable doubt. Just reasonable doubt on that. Just that there could be... Maybe her not answering the phone on Saturday was a fluke. Maybe she was just having one of those days where she... Even extroverts will have a day where they don't want to. Trust me. Yeah. When an extrovert hits that burnout, it's weird. But it does happen. We all have a threshold. Maybe she just did not feel like talking on Saturday. 
but maybe not. I really need to know whether or not she called him to work. Same. And so the last person to see her was ostensibly Friday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that was the time at which her mom had last heard from her. Okay. But if we consider the idea that time of death can be a range, and not to get really geeky about this, but, you know, I have a lot of, like, death books, and I read a lot about this stuff. When you're looking at calculating time of death, you basically, it's it's simplest in its earliest stages. Yes. And it's simplest in its later stages of decomposition. It's really hard in the middle. Yeah. That 12 to 72 hour stage. It's really, really hard because yeah. that's when all the variabilities matter, right? Um, for example, if she obviously, you know, she died in her bed, her lividity would look a particular way mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time. Like I said, for her to have been, for the time of death to have been placed at Sunday morning based on observation Monday morning, or so say Monday midday, right? That's 24 hours. Yeah. That would mean that she is starting to come out of rigor, but it's not all the way out of rigor. Yeah. Right. Uh, bodies come out of rigor in the order in which they go into rigor, usually face first. Uh-huh. Um, and those smaller muscles before those big muscle groups do basically. But again, any of those could be variable based on the temperature of that room, how much or how little she was wearing. It's just, there's variability there. Yeah. So, you know, I would wonder if something didn't happen Saturday night. And really between Saturday night and Sunday morning, you're really only talking about a matter of potentially 10 hours. Yeah. And that's easily within margin of error for something like easily. that. Easily. Again, that would mean that somebody could conceivably, if you look at it through that lens, somebody would have to have an alibi for Saturday rather than Sunday. Yeah. And that could considerably shift how this case is looked at. Oh, yeah. Hugely. And again, I say all of this not as an expert by any means, but as a curious citizen yes, with a lifelong death obsession. <laughs> so take me with a grain of salt. But, you know, these are, these are not like ill-considered thoughts, you know, like I did a lot of reading and research before, yeah. you know, thinking, because you don't want to cast out on an investigation unless it really seems like there ought to be doubt cast. Yeah. You know? And it just seems, again, like it just seems so solvable to me. And I think the other thing that we really have to know is whether or not that blood evidence was fed through CODIS. Uh-huh. It's very scary not to know whether or not that was done. It just feels like some of those early steps yeah, didn't get done. Exactly. And they can be redone, right? Like everything happened in 2007. Yeah. But, you know, you could rerun it through. Maybe that person has gotten in trouble since then. Yeah. It's been a while. You know, we have seen cases get solved that way. Yeah. Where somebody just like, you know what, this is a cold case. I'm going to run it through again. Oh, crap. This person has been jailed for this or that. Never had a record before. That was their first crime. And then they slipped somewhere later. Yeah. Right. And we can corroborate that. That happens for a lot of serial killers that we see, right? Oh, yeah. They get caught for something minor and stuff gets run through. and Exactly. So that's kind of where my geekery is going to pause. I just want to talk a little bit about just kind of the impact, the ripple effect that her death has had on Mm -hmm. people around her. So uh, that effect has been profound and really tragic. Mm -hmm. Um, Her brother, Daniel, was very deeply impacted by the murder of his sister and struggled with it for 
years and he actually shot himself in 2013 oh my god and he would cite his grief and anguish in his note about anita's death as the reason why Mm -hmm. so uh when you when you look at it that way this crime has two victims you know what i mean yeah so i would just you know as you're reserving space in your week to think about anita i would save some space as well for her brother daniel oh yeah definitely yeah tyler schmalz our prom date he continues something of a citizen's investigation he accepts tips and passes them along to police he does communicate with law enforcement pretty consistently and has basically just been an advocate overall for the case not going cold. Okay. Which, again, for some people seems fishy. For others, seems the opposite, right? And that's just interpretive. Yeah. So that kind of takes us back to our essential question, in my view. What do we think? Do our POIs have more to explain? Like, from what I could tell, just like reading forums and stuff like that, just looking around seems like most people believe it was either Tyler and his obsession gone wrong or it was the roommate and her ire over Anita like calling her out basically and that's kind of the two camps of thought I feel like I'm gonna need a lot more evidence against Tyler mm-hmm. I mean I need a lot more evidence against both of them yeah but there's nothing that immediately points me in the direction of Tyler other than a good friend maybe a little too close Mm-hmm. But if he is, you know, working to try to help solve it, I don't know. Yeah. I have a lot more questions about the roommate. Mm-hmm. It just that alibi is shaky at best. And I think because she's so anonymous, then it's, you know, it's hard to get a vibe. It's hard to have any defense against her mm. at all. And I know that those are the two camps, but there's a lot more that could be going on here. Yeah. I just feels like there's so little evidence, so little information, so little story. There's just so many gaps. So many gaps. Yeah. There really are. And it feels like one of those ones where the gaps are not going to get filled until somebody is apprehended. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can hear, you know, how everything else came together. But... I did my best with what we had, and I just think it, this is one of those things where, like, this is a story that I would really encourage people to share. And, you know, if you've got the ability to put pressure on Minot, put that pressure, I say, because I think I my sense, my uh, instinct is that they, they have responded to pressure as far as media attention goes. Good. So Good. that I think is kind of telling in some ways about – how this investigation is going to have to go if Mm -hmm. we're going to see it done. I think it's going to have to be people staying loud. I see the leads. Mm -hmm. Like, I see where you could get more information and it's not being followed by the police. Yeah, At least not from what we have to go on. Right, from what we know. And again, like, we have to reserve that benefit of the doubt that we don't, we're not them, we don't know everything that they know, right? Mm -hmm. But it, I think it, it is worthy of question. Yeah. This feels like a failing investigation. Mm, and that was my final question. Mm. Is this a failed investigation? There seems like there's ways to save it. Mm-hmm. Not, and they don't even have to necessarily be like a fucking Hail Mary, but just, right. all right, let's sit down. Let's collect ourselves. Let's 
fucking full court press this shit for the last mm-hmm. three minutes of the game and fucking we can make a comeback. Yeah. I like thinking about it as a failing investigation. I think that's really interesting yeah. because I like I like thinking about that as an active verb, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to stay failing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to become a failed investigation. We understand that things are a process, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From here, it doesn't look good. Yeah. But I really do not want to be watching Anita Knutson's case on cold case files no. in 10 years. No. You know, I really think that there's there's just got to be a way with this one. There's got to be a way. And if they haven't really hit that many dead ends and they've really like, dude, we investigated every lead. We looked for blah, blah, blah. Come out and say that. Yeah, exactly. Or get some fresh eyeballs on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So that is our case for the week. A lot of food for thought, I say. Lots and lots of food for thought. I hope that the investigators can kind of pull back and look at it again and see Mm. where there were missteps and correct those. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I sure hope so. Do you have a camp on this one? I have a Uh semi-camp. I personally, I have a lot of doubt in the roommate. For the same reasons that you said, mm-hmm. I think because the advocates for this case have been very much loud about it, yeah. if the roommate is not loud about it and not participating in that process, that that's what takes me away from Tyler. Yeah. It's not just that he showed up at the scene. It's that he's actively trying to help. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I think that if, if a friend or even a former friend, even if it's somebody that I don't necessarily have liked. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, died tragically. I would still be like, we need to get to fucking answers. Yeah. Everybody exactly. deserves answers. And what I keep coming back to is just the quietness of that scene and yeah. potentially the, like, serenity of that scene. Like, yeah. the quietness is what makes me think that she was able to be overtaken while she was sleeping. Yeah. You know, it has to imply somebody who was able to get in without her notice. Yeah. You know, like, if somebody busts through your bedroom window while you're sleeping, you're going to know. But if somebody, you know, quietly slips in, you're going to assume, oh, that's my roommate and roll back over and go to sleep. Yeah. I think it's possible to slip into a bedroom window without being noticed, but. Mm. I'm a real light sleeper. I I don't know if anyone could pull that on me, but. I've been taking Benadryl the last couple of weeks, so (laughs) nothing waking me up. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody want to come in and murder me? Go for it. Don't, please don't murder her. I need her in my life. Um. So yeah, I, I am definitely, I have a lot of questions for the roommate, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that it's somebody that we don't know about. Yeah. That was a more casual acquaintance of her. I just think without, with, in the absence of sexual evidence, I have a hard time. In the absence of evidence pointing to a robbery, I have a hard time believing that it's a motive that isn't kind of like very interpersonal. It definitely you know? would be an anomaly yeah it's just odd that she was just kind of left there knowing that she would be found yeah with very very little evidence or very very little attempt to cover up the scene of the crime i think that that kind of stands out to me yeah i could see that like the the roommate would have to be really cold and really really calculating yeah to do that and and i don't know anything about her to say yay or nay on that right right it also occurred to me that 
if somebody wanted her dead but didn't want to do it themselves Mm. that you could end up in that kind of situation too where you know somebody was having whatever issue with her and paid somebody else or coerced somebody else or whatever then you could kind of get like and this is just like obviously highly speculative but we're 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 way far in speculation territory at this point but something like that could explain how it feels a little bit of both like it feels a little bit like a stranger but it feels a little bit intimate yeah and that is a way to kind of reconcile that like that theory reconciles that you know to yeah so coldly kill somebody that you know so well and just leave them there mm-hmm. requires a level of sociopathy to me yeah deta- i mean on an extreme degree of detachment for mm-hmm. sure yeah yeah so the, i mean those are my thoughts that's that's kind of where i'm at with it my my most prevailing thought though is that it just it does feel solvable yeah it does it, it really does, does feel solvable yeah and that's why even though it is an unsolved case currently and that that is anomalous for me the fact that it feels so solvable just it just it feels like we're like right on the tip of it you know like right on the edge of it yeah i will keep her on my radar yes please keep anita's case on your radar please keep her in your thoughts please think about her brother and all the other people who've you know obviously been impacted by this case, her parents have been traumatized severely. Her siblings, Anna, has you can find interviews with her sister Anna, and she's obviously traumatized and heartbroken, you know, by this entire thing. So mm-hmm. just keep all of them, you know, front of mind this week. Yes. So tell us about next week. Um, next week we are going to the great city of Detroit. <gasps> we are. We are. We Aww. are straight up in Detroit. I'm kind of excited because we get to talk about a scene that I love from afar. Mm. We get to talk about the Detroit ballroom voguing scene. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So we're going to be talking about, um, I know that we're closing out on Pride Month. And mm-hmm. I don't really care because I really wanted to cover this case. Yeah. <laughs> um, because every month should be Pride Month. Every month so. should be Pride Month. We're going to be covering the very tragic murder of a wonderful woman who, to me, I feel is the epitome of Stonewall. Mm. And the case is still in court right now, so we'll get to do a little speculation about where this is going to go. Okay. Oh, this is why you've been texting me a lot of questions. Okay. <laughs> I, I have been, listeners, I have been texting Tommy a bunch of questions like how fast does the does the court system work in Michigan how long long from preliminary hearings to criminal hearings welcome to the mitten (laughs) you're I've learned you're generally faster than us in Illinois yeah Illinois is just the worst I was gonna say not by a long shot but you're faster than us but Illinois just is just the worst yeah and it's just the worst and since COVID has shut everything down yeah yeah, for sure. We're going to get to do a little speculation of our own. Awesome. Yeah. Well, people, please come back for that. Yeah. Um, we hope that you enjoyed our case today and that it kind of tickled your brains and got you thinking. Yeah. yeah and, you know, please come back next week to, you know, hear another riveting story of Detroit craziness. <laughs> You know, and in the meantime, you know, engage with us on social media. We would love to hear uh, your thoughts on our essential question. 
or my essential question, I guess, since I'm the teacher weirdo. 12 point um, font times New Roman double space. Thank you. That's right. Um, I will accept Garamond in special circumstances because it's my favorite font. <laughs> and yeah, come back. And in the meantime, like I said, and keep engaging with us. We're at Midwretched everywhere. Uh, leave us kind reviews. We love that. Yeah, pop us by. Leave us a review. Drop a star. Um, yeah. Five stars if you choose. Um, but yeah, we like stars. Say we hi. Like stars. Yeah, we love it. We are we are loving you guys. And again, we're we keep getting these little booms, and we're just so excited about it. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for being here. We've had a good almost year. Almost year. We're coming up on our anniversary. I have a special plan for us for our anniversary. So yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. All right, you guys. Should we should we say our goodbyes? We should say our go goodbyes. To the <laughs> I gotta blow my nose. Okay. Well, uh, as always, we hope that you be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. All right, you guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So yeah, maybe your bloop at the end of this episode will just be a montage of my snorts. (laughs) I love the idea of you like putting that editing together where you're just like putting every sniff or like hairball you cough up in like the clipboard. (laughs) Then you just put them all together. I vote for that being the bloop. Absolutely. Uh, Way to turn off all of our listeners. I know. Wait, no, stay. We promise. (laughs)